0: Section 25 of Terras Bulba and Other Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Perry Letson. Terras Bulba and Other Tales by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. Part two. A throng of carriages and other vehicles stood at the entrance of a house in which an auction was going on of the effects of one of those wealthy art lovers who have innocently passed for Maisinesses, and in a simple minded fashion expended, to that end, the millions amassed by their thrifty fathers, and frequently even by their own early labors. The long saloon was filled with the most motley throng of visitors, collected like birds of prey swooping down upon unburied corpses. There was a whole squadron of Russian shopkeepers from the Gostinuig Dvor, and from the old clothes-mart, in blue coats of foreign make. Their faces and expressions were a little more natural here, and did not display that fictitious desire to be subservient which is so marked in the Russian shopkeeper when he stands before a customer in his shop. Here they stood upon no ceremony, although the saloons were full of those very aristocrats before whom, in any other place, they would have been ready to sweep with reverence the dust brought in by their feet. They were quite at their ease, handling pictures and books without ceremony, when desirous of ascertaining the value of the goods, and boldly upsetting bargains mentally secured in advance by noble connoisseurs. There were many of those infallible attendants of auctions who make it a point to go to one every day as regularly as to take their breakfast. Aristocratic connoisseurs who look upon it as their duty not to miss any opportunity of adding to their collections, and who have no other occupations between twelve o'clock and one and noble gentlemen with garments very threadbare, who make their daily appearance without any selfish object in view, but merely to see how it all goes off. A quantity of pictures were lying about in disorder. With them were mingled furniture and books with the cipher of the former owner, who never was moved by any laudable desire to glance into them. Chinese vases, Marble slabs for tables, old and new furniture with curving lines, with griffins, sphinxes, and lion's paws, gilded and ungilded, chandeliers, sconces, all were heaped together in a perfect chaos of art. The auction appeared to be at its height. The surging throng was competing for a portrait which could not but arrest the attention of all who possessed any knowledge of art. The skilled hand of an artist was plainly visible in it. The portrait, which had apparently been several times restored and renovated, represented the dark features of an Asiatic in flowing garments, and with a strange and remarkable expression of countenance. But what struck the buyers more than anything else was the peculiar liveliness of the eyes. The more they were looked at, the more did they seem to penetrate into the gazer's heart this peculiarity, this strange illusion achieved by the artist, attracted the attention of nearly all. Many who had been bidding gradually withdrew, for the price offered had risen to an incredible sum. There remained only two well-known aristocrats, amateurs of painting, who were unwilling to forego such an acquisition. They grew warm, and would probably have run the bidding up to an impossible sum had not one of the onlookers suddenly exclaimed, Permit me to interrupt your competition for a while. I, perhaps more than any other, have a right to this portrait. These words at once drew the attention of all to him. He was a tall man of thirty-five, with long black curls. His pleasant face, full of a certain bright nonchalance, indicated a mind free from all wearisome worldly excitement. His garments had no pretense to fashion. All about him indicated the artist. He was, in fact, B, the painter, a man personally well known to many of those present. However strange my words may seem to you, he continued, perceiving that the general attention was directed to him, if you will listen to a short story, you may possibly see that I was right in uttering them. Everything assures me that this is the portrait which I am looking for. A natural curiosity illuminated the faces of nearly all present, and even the auctioneer paused as he was opening his mouth, and with hammer uplifted in the air, prepared to listen. At the beginning of the story, many glanced involuntarily toward the portrait, but later on, all bent their attention solely on the narrator, as his tale. "'grew gradually more absorbing. "'You know that portion of the city "'which is called Coloma,' he began. "'There everything is unlike anything else "'in St. Petersburg. "'Retired officials remove thither to live. "'Widows, people not very well off, "'who have acquaintances in the Senate "'and therefore condemn themselves to this "'for nearly the whole of their lives. "'And, in short, that whole list of people,' who can be described by the words ash-colored, people whose garments, faces, hair, eyes, have a sort of ashy surface, like a day when there is in the sky neither cloud nor sun. Among them may be retired actors, retired titular counselors, retired sons of Mars with ruined eyes and swollen lips. Life in Coloma is terribly dull, Rarely does a carriage appear, except perhaps one containing an actor, which disturbs the universal stillness by its rumble, noise, and jingling. You can get lodgings for five rubles a month, coffee in the morning included. Widows with pensions are the most aristocratic families there. They conduct themselves well, sweep their rooms often, chatter with their friends about the dearness of beef and cabbage, and frequently have a young daughter— a taciturn, quiet, sometimes pretty creature, an ugly dog, and wall clocks which strike in a melancholy fashion. Then come the actors, whose salaries do not permit them to desert Coloma, an independent folk living, like all artists, for pleasure. They sit in their dressing gowns, cleaning their pistols gluing together all sorts of things out of cardboard, playing drafts and cards with any friend who chances to drop by, and so pass away the morning, doing pretty nearly the same in the evening, with the addition of punch now and then. After these great people and aristocracy of Kalama come the rank and file. It is as difficult to put a name to them as to remember the multitude of insects which breed in stale vinegar. There are old women who get drunk, who make a living by incomprehensible means, like ants dragging old clothes and rags from the Kalinkin Bridge to the old clothes mart in order to sell them for 15 kopecks. In short, the very dregs of mankind, whose conditions no beneficent political economist has devised any means of ameliorating. I have mentioned them in order to point out how often such people find themselves under the necessity of seeking immediate temporary assistance, and having recourse to borrowing. Hence there settles among them a peculiar race of money-lenders, who lend small sums on security at an enormous percentage. Among these usurers was a certain—but I must not omit to mention that the occurrence which I have undertaken to relate— occurred in the last century in the reign of our late empress Catherine the second so among the usurers at that epoch was a certain person an extraordinary being in every respect who had settled in that quarter of the city long before he went about in flowing asiatic garb his dark complexion indicated a southern origin but to what particular nation he belonged india greece or persia no one could say with certainty of tall almost colossal stature with dark thin ardent face heavy overhanging brows and an indescribably strange color in his large eyes of unwanted fire he differed sharply and strongly from all the ash-colored denizens of the capital his very dwelling was unlike the other little wooden houses it was of stone, in the style of those formerly much affected by Genoese merchants, with irregular windows of various sizes, secured with iron shutters and bars. This usurer differed from other usurers also, in that he could furnish any required sum, from that desired by the poor old beggar-woman, to that demanded by the extravagant grandee of the court. The most gorgeous equipages often halted in front of his house, and from their windows sometimes peeped forth the head of an elegant, high-born lady. Rumor, as usual, reported that his iron coffers were full of untold gold, treasures, diamonds, and all sorts of pledges, but that, nevertheless, he was not the slave of that avarice which is characteristic of other usurers. He lent money willingly and on very favorable terms of payment, apparently, but by some curious method of reckoning made them mount to an incredible percentage. So said Rumor, at any rate. But what was strangest of all was the peculiar fate of those who received money from him. They all ended their lives in some unhappy way. Whether this was simply the popular superstition, or the result of reports circulated with an object, is not known. But several instances which happened within a brief space of time before the eyes of everyone were vivid and striking. Among the aristocracy of that day, one who speedily drew attention to himself, was a young man of one of the best families, who had made a figure in his early years in court circles, a warm admirer of everything true and noble, zealous in his love for art, and giving promise of becoming a masoness he was soon deservedly distinguished by the empress who conferred upon him an important post fully proportioned to his deserts a post in which he could accomplish much for science and the general welfare the youthful dignitary surrounded himself with artists poets and learned men he wished to give work to all to encourage all he undertook at his own expense a number of useful publications, gave numerous orders to artists, offered prizes for the encouragement of different arts, spent a great deal of money, and finally ruined himself. But, full of noble impulses, he did not wish to relinquish his work, sought to raise a loan, and finally betook himself to the well-known usurer. Having borrowed a considerable sum from him, the man in a short time, changed completely. He became a persecutor and oppressor of budding talent and intellect. He saw the bad side in everything produced, and every word he uttered was false. Then, unfortunately, came the French Revolution. This furnished him with an excuse for every kind of suspicion. He began to discover a revolutionary tendency in everything, to concoct terrible and unjust accusations, which made scores of people unhappy. Of course, such conduct could not fail in time to reach the throne. The kind-hearted empress was shocked, and, full of the noble spirit which adorned crowned heads, she uttered words still engraven on many hearts. The empress remarked that not under a monarchical government were high and noble impulses persecuted not there were the creations of intellect poetry and art contemned and oppressed on the other hand monarchs alone were their protectors shakespeare and moliere flourished under their magnanimous protection while dante could not find a corner in his republican birthplace she said that true geniuses arise at the epoch of brilliancy and power in emperors and empires but not in the time of monstrous political apparitions and republican terrorism, which, up to that time, had never given to the world a single poet. That poet-artists should be marked out for favor, since peace and divine quiet alone compose their minds, not excitement and tumult. That learned men, poets, and all producers of art are the pearls and diamonds in the imperial crown. By them is the epoch of the great ruler adorned and from them it receives yet greater brilliancy as the empress uttered these words she was divinely beautiful for the moment and i remember old men who could not speak of the occurrence without tears all were interested in the affair it must be remarked to the honor of our national pride that in the russians heart there always beats a fine feeling that he must adopt the part of the persecuted. The dignitary who had betrayed his trust was punished in an exemplary manner and degraded from his post. But he read a more dreadful punishment in the faces of his fellow countrymen, universal scorn. It is impossible to describe what he suffered, and he died in a terrible attack of raving madness. Another striking example also occurred. Among the beautiful women in which our northern capital assuredly is not poor, one decidedly surpassed the rest. Her loveliness was a combination of our northern charms with those of the south, a gem such as rarely makes its appearance on earth. My father said that he had never beheld anything like it in the whole course of his life. Everything seemed to be united in her, wealth, intellect, and wit. She had throngs of admirers, the most distinguished of them being Prince R, the most noble-minded of all young men, the finest in face and an ideal of romance in his magnanimous and knightly sentiments. Prince R was passionately in love and was requited by a like-ardent passion. But the match seemed unequal to the parents. The prince's family estates, had not been in his possession for a long time. His family was out of favor, and the sad state of his affairs was well known to all. Of a sudden, the prince quitted the capital, as if for the purpose of arranging his affairs, and after a short interval reappeared, surrounded with luxury and splendor. Brilliant balls and parties made him known at court. The lady's father began to relent, and the wedding took place. Whence this change in circumstances, this unheard-of wealth, came, no one could fully explain, but it was whispered that he had entered into a compact with the mysterious usurer, and had borrowed money of him. However that may have been, the wedding was a source of interest to the whole city, and the bride and bridegroom were objects of general envy. Everyone knew of their warm and faithful love, the long persecution they had had to endure from every quarter, the great personal worth of both. Ardent women at once sketched out the heavenly bliss which the young couple would enjoy. But it turned out very differently. In the course of a year, a frightful change came over the husband. His character, up to that time so noble, became poisoned with jealous suspicions, irritability, and inexhaustible caprices. He became a tyrant to his wife, a thing which no one could have foreseen, and he indulged in the most inhuman deeds, and even in blows. In a year's time, no one would have recognized the woman who, such a little while before, had dazzled and drawn about her throngs of submissive adorers. Finally, no longer able to endure her lot, she proposed a divorce. Her husband flew into a rage at the very suggestion. In the first outburst of passion, he chased her about the room with a knife and would doubtless have murdered her then and there if they had not seized him and prevented him. In a fit of madness and despair, he turned the knife against himself and ended his life amid the most horrible sufferings. Besides these two instances, which occurred before the eyes of all the world, stories circulated of many more among the lower classes, nearly all of which had tragic endings. Here an honest, sober man became a drunkard. There a shopkeeper's clerk robbed his master. Again, a driver who had conducted himself properly for a number of years cut his passenger's throat for a groschen. It was impossible that such occurrences, related, not without embellishments should not inspire a sort of involuntary horror among the sedate inhabitants of coloma no one entertained any doubt as to the presence of an evil power in the usurer they said that he imposed conditions which made the hair rise on one's head and which the miserable wretch never afterward dared reveal to any other being that his money possessed a strange power of attraction that it grew hot of itself, and that it bore strange marks. And it is worthy of remark that all the colony of Kalama, all these poor old women, small officials, petty artists, and insignificant people whom we have just recapitulated, agreed that it was better to endure anything and to suffer the extreme of misery rather than to have recourse to the terrible usurer. Old women were even found dying of hunger, who preferred to kill their bodies rather than lose their soul. Those who met him in the street experienced an involuntary sense of fear. Pedestrians took care to turn aside from his path and gazed long after his tall, receding figure. In his face alone there was sufficient that was uncommon to cause anyone to ascribe to him a supernatural nature the strong features so deeply chiseled, the glowing bronze of his complexion, the incredible thickness of his brows, the intolerable, terrible eyes, everything seemed to indicate that the passions of other men were pale compared to those raging within him. My father stopped short every time he met him and could not refrain each time from saying, a devil, a perfect devil, BUT I MUST INTRODUCE YOU AS SPEEDILY AS POSSIBLE TO MY FATHER, THE CHIEF CHARACTER OF THIS STORY. MY FATHER WAS A REMARKABLE MAN IN MANY RESPECTS. HE WAS AN ARTIST OF RARE ABILITY, A self taught ARTIST, WITHOUT TEACHERS OR SCHOOLS, PRINCIPLES AND RULES, CARRIED AWAY ONLY BY THE THIRST FOR PERFECTION, AND TREADING A PATH INDICATED BY HIS OWN INSTINCTS, FOR REASONS UNKNOWN PERCHANCE, EVEN TO HIMSELF. Through some lofty and secret instinct, he perceived the presence of a soul in every object. And this secret instinct and personal conviction turned his brush to Christian subjects, grand and lofty to the last degree. His was a strong character. He was an honorable, upright, even rough man, covered with a, sor- a sort of hard rind without not entirely lacking in pride, and given to expressing himself both sharply and scornfully about people. He worked for very small results, that is to say, for just enough to support his family and obtain the materials he needed. He never, under any circumstances, refused to aid any one, or to lend a helping hand to a poor artist, and he believed with the simple, reverent faith of his ancestors. At length, by his unintermitting labor and his perseverance in the path he had marked out for himself, he began to win the approbation of those who honored his self-taught talent. They gave him constant orders for churches, and he never lacked employment. One of his paintings possessed a strong interest for him. I no longer recollect the exact subject. I only know that he needed to represent the spirit of darkness in it. He pondered long what form to give him. He wished to concentrate in his face all that weighs down and oppresses a man. In the midst of his meditations there suddenly occurred to his mind the image of the mysterious usurer, and he thought involuntarily, that's how I ought to paint the devil. Imagine his amazement when one day, as he was at work in his studio, he heard a knock at the door and directly after, there entered the same terrible usurer. "'You are an artist?' he said to my father abruptly. "'I am,' answered my father in surprise, waiting for what should come next. "'Good. Paint my portrait. I may possibly die soon. I have no children, but I do not wish to die completely. I wish to live. Can you paint a portrait that shall appear as though it were alive?' my father reflected. What could be better? He offers himself for the devil in my picture. He promised. They agreed upon a time and price, and the next day my father took palette and brushes and went to the usurer's house. The lofty courtyard, dogs, iron doors and locks, arched windows, coffers, draped with strange covers, and last of all, the remarkable owner himself, Seated motionless before him, all produced a strange impression on him. The windows seemed intentionally so encumbered below that they admitted the light only from the top. Devil take him, how well his face is lighted, he said to himself, and he began to paint assiduously, as though afraid that the favorable light would disappear. What power, he repeated to himself. If I only accomplish half a likeness of him as he is now, it will surpass all my other works. He will simply start from the canvas if I am only partly true to nature. What remarkable features! He redoubled his energy and began himself to notice how some of his sitter's traits were making their appearance on the canvas. But the more closely he approached resemblance, the more conscious he became of an aggressive, uneasy feeling, which he could not explain to himself. Notwithstanding this, he set himself to copy with literal accuracy every trait and expression. First of all, however, he busied himself with the eyes. There was so much force in those eyes that it seemed impossible to reproduce them exactly as they were in nature, but he resolved, at any price, to seek in them the most minute characteristics and shades, to penetrate their secrets. As soon, however, as he approached them in resemblance and began to redouble his exertions, there sprang up in his mind such a terrible feeling of repulsion, of inexplicable expression, that he was forced to lay aside his brush for a while and begin anew. At last he could bear it no longer. He felt as if those eyes were piercing into his soul and causing intolerable emotion. On the second and third days, this grew still stronger, it became horrible to him. He threw down his brush and declared abruptly that he could paint the stranger no longer. You should have seen how the terrible usurer changed countenance at those words. He threw himself at his feet and besought him to finish the portrait, saying that his fate and his existence depended on it, that he had already caught his prominent features and that if he could reproduce them accurately, his life would be preserved in his portrait in a supernatural manner, and that by those means he would not die completely, that it was necessary for him to continue to exist in the world. My father was frightened by these words. They seemed to him strange and terrible to such a degree that he threw down his brushes and palette and rushed headlong from the room. The thought of it troubled him all day and night, but the next morning he received the portrait from the usurer by a woman who was the only creature in his service and who announced that her master did not want the portrait and would pay nothing for it and had sent it back. On the evening of the same day, he learned that the usurer was dead and that preparations were in progress to bury him according to the rites of his religion. All this seemed to him inexplicably strange. But from that day, a marked change showed itself in his character. He was possessed by a troubled, uneasy feeling, of which he was unable to explain the cause, and he soon committed a deed which no one could have expected of him. For some time the works of one of his pupils had been attracting the attention of a small circle of connoisseurs and amateurs. My father had perceived his talent and manifested a particular liking for him in consequence. Suddenly, the general interest in him and talk about him became unendurable to my father, who grew envious of him. Finally, to complete his vexation, he learned that his pupil had been asked to paint a picture for a recently built and wealthy church. This enraged him. No, I will not permit that fledgling to triumph, said he. It is early, friend, to think of consigning old men to the gutters. I still have powers, God be praised. We'll soon see which will put down the other. And this straightforward, honorable man employed intrigues which he had hitherto abhorred. He finally contrived that there should be a competition for the picture which other artists were permitted to enter into. Then he shut himself up in his room and grasped his brush with zeal. It seemed as if he were striving to summon all his strength up for this occasion, and, in fact, the result turned out to be one of his best works. No one doubted that he would bear off the palm. The pictures were placed on exhibition, and all the others seemed to his as night to day. But of a sudden, one of the members present, an ecclesiastical personage, if I mistake not, made a remark which surprised everyone. "'There is certainly much talent in the artist's picture,' said he, "'but no holiness in the faces. "'There is even, on the contrary, "'a demoniacal look in the eyes, "'as though some evil feeling had guided the artist's hand. "'All looked and could not but acknowledge "'the truth of these words.' My father rushed forward to his picture, as though to verify for himself this offensive remark, and perceived with horror that he had bestowed the usurer's eyes upon nearly all the figures. They had such a diabolical gaze that he involuntarily shuddered. The picture was rejected, and he was forced to hear, to his indescribable vexation, that the palm was awarded to his pupil." it is impossible to describe the state of rage in which he returned home he almost killed my mother he drove the children away broke his brushes and easels tore down the usurer's portrait from the wall demanded a knife and ordered a fire to be built in the chimney intending to cut it in pieces and burn it a friend an artist caught him in the act as he entered the room a jolly fellow always satisfied with himself, inflated by unattainable wishes, doing daily anything that came to hand, and taking still more gaily to his dinner and little carouses. "'What are you doing? What are you preparing to burn?' he asked, and stepped up to the portrait. "'Why, this is one of your very best works. It is the usurer who died a short time ago. Yes, it is a most perfect likeness. You did not stop until you had got into his very eyes.' "'Never did eyes look as these do now.' "'Well, I'll see how they look in the fire,' said my father, "'making a movement to fling the portrait into the grate. "'Stop, for heaven's sake!' exclaimed his friend, "'restraining him. "'Give it to me, rather, if it offends your eyes to such a degree.' "'My father resisted, but yielded at length, "'and the jolly fellow, well pleased with his acquisition, "'carried the portrait home with him. "'When he was done,' My father felt more calm. The burden seemed to have disappeared from his soul in company with the portrait. He was surprised himself at his evil feelings, his envy, and the evident change in his character. Reviewing his acts, he became sad at heart, and not without inward sorrow did he exclaim, No, it was God who punished me. My picture, in fact, was meant to ruin my brother-man. A devilish feeling of envy guided my brush, and that devilish feeling must have made itself visible in it. He set out at once to seek his former pupil, embraced him warmly, begged his forgiveness, and endeavored as far as possible to excuse his own fault. His labors continued as before, but his face was more frequently thoughtful. He prayed more, grew more taciturn, and expressed himself less sharply about people. Even the rough exterior of his character was modified to some extent. But a certain occurrence soon disturbed him more than ever. He had seen nothing for a long time of the comrade who had begged the portrait of him. He had already decided to hunt him up, when the latter suddenly made his appearance in his room. After a few words and questions on both sides, he said, well, brother, it was not without cause that you wished to burn that portrait. Devil take it. There's something horrible about it. I don't believe in sorcerers, but begging your pardon, there's an unclean spirit in it. How so? asked my father. Well, from the very moment I hung it up in my room, I felt such depression, just as if I wanted to murder someone. I never knew in my life what sleeplessness was, but I suffered not from sleeplessness alone, but from such dreams. I cannot tell whether they were dreams or what. It was as if a demon were strangling one, and the old man appeared to me in my sleep. In short, I can't describe my state of mind. I had a sensation of fear, as if expecting something unpleasant. I felt as if I could not speak a cheerful or sincere word to anyone. It was just as if a spy were sitting over me. But from the very hour that I gave that portrait to my nephew, who asked for it, I felt as if a stone had been rolled from my shoulders, and became cheerful, as you see me now. Well, brother, you painted the very devil. During this recital, my father listened with unswerving attention, and finally inquired, "'And your nephew now has the portrait?' My nephew, indeed. He could not stand it, said the jolly fellow. Do you know the soul of that usurer has migrated into it? He jumps out of the frame, walks about the room, and what my nephew tells of him is simply incomprehensible. I should take him for a lunatic if I had not undergone a part of it myself. He sold it to some collector of pictures, and he could not stand it either, and got rid of it to someone else." This story produced a deep impression on my father. He grew seriously pensive, fell into hypochondria, and finally became fully convinced that his brush had served as a tool of the devil, and that a portion of the usurer's vitality had actually passed into the portrait and was now troubling people, inspiring diabolical excitement, beguiling painters from the true path, producing the fearful torments of envy, and so forth three catastrophes which occurred afterwards, three sudden deaths of wife, daughter, and infant son, he regarded as a divine punishment on him and firmly resolved to withdraw from the world. As soon as I was nine years old, he placed me in an academy of painting and paying all his debts, retired to a lonely cloister where he soon afterwards took the vows. There he amazed everyone by the strictness of his life and his untiring observance of all the monastic rules. The prior of the monastery, hearing of his skill in painting, ordered him to paint the principal picture in the church. But the humble brother said plainly that he was unworthy to touch a brush, that his was contaminated, that with toil and great sacrifice must he first purify his spirit in order to render himself fit to undertake such a task he increased the rigors of monastic life for himself as much as possible at last even they became insufficient and he retired with the approval of the prior into the desert in order to be quite alone there he constructed himself a cell from branches of trees ate only uncooked roots dragged about a stone from place to place stood in one spot with his hands lifted to heaven from the rising until the going down of the sun, reciting prayers without cessation. In this manner did he for several years exhaust his body, invigorating it at the same time with the strength of fervent prayer. At length, one day he returned to the cloister and said firmly to the prior, Now I am ready. If God wills, I will finish my task. The subject he selected was the birth of Christ. A whole year he sat over it without leaving his cell, barely sustaining himself with coarse food and praying incessantly. At the end of the year, the picture was ready. It was a really wonderful work. Neither prior nor brethren knew much about painting, but all were struck with the marvelous holiness of the figures the expression of reverent humility and gentleness in the face of the Holy Mother as she bent over the child, the deep intelligence in the eyes of the Holy Child, as though he saw something afar, the triumphant silence of the Magi, amazed by the divine miracle as they bowed at his feet, and finally, the indescribable peace which emanated from the whole picture, all this was presented with such strength and beauty that the impression it made was magical. All the brethren threw themselves on their knees before it, and the prior, deeply affected, exclaimed, No, it is impossible for any artist, with the assistance only of earthly art, to produce such a picture. A holy, divine power has guided thy brush, and the blessing of heaven rested upon thy labour. By that time I had completed my education at the Academy, received the gold medal, and with it the joyful hope of a journey to Italy, the fairest dream of a twenty-year-old artist. It only remained for me to take leave of my father, from whom I had been separated for twelve years. I confess that even his image had long faded from my memory. I had heard somewhat of his grim saintliness, and rather expected to meet a hermit of rough exterior a stranger to everything in the world, except his cell and his prayers, worn out, tried up, by eternal fasting and penance. But how great was my surprise when a handsome old man stood before me. No traces of exhaustion were visible on his countenance. It beamed with the light of heavenly joy. His beard, white as snow, and his thin, almost transparent hair of the same silvery hue fell picturesquely upon his breast, and upon the folds of his black gown, even to the rope with which his poor monastic garb was girded. But most surprising to me of all was to hear from his mouth such words and thoughts about art as, I confess, I long shall bear in mind, and I sincerely wish that all my comrades would do the same. I expected you, my son, he said, when I approached for his blessing. The path awaits you in which your life is henceforth to flow. Your path is pure. Desert it not. You have talent. Talent is the most priceless of God's gifts. Destroy it not. Search out. Subject all things to your brush. But in all that you see, find the hidden soul. And most of all, strive to attain to the grand secret of creation. Blessed is the elect one who masters that. There is for him no mean object in nature. In lowly themes, the artist creator is as great as in great ones. In the despicable, there is nothing for him to despise, for it passes through the purifying fire of his mind. An intimation of God's heavenly paradise is contained for the artist in art, and by that alone is it higher than all else. But by as much as triumphant rest is grander than every earthly emotion, by so much is the lofty creation of art higher than everything else on earth. Sacrifice everything to it, and love it with passion, not with the passion breathing with earthly desire, but a peaceful, heavenly passion. It cannot plant discord in the spirit, but ascends like a resounding prayer eternally to god but there are moments dark moments he paused and i observed that his bright face darkened as though some cloud crossed it for a moment there is one incident of my life he said up to this moment i cannot understand what that terrible being was of whom i painted a likeness it was certainly some diabolical apparition I know that the world denies the existence of the devil, and therefore I will not speak of him. I will only say that I painted him with repugnance. I felt no liking for my work even at the time. I tried to force myself, in stifling every emotion in a hard-hearted way, to be true to nature. I have been informed that this portrait is passing from hand to hand, and sowing unpleasant impressions. Inspiring artists with feelings of envy, of dark hatred towards their brethren, with malicious thirst for persecution and oppression. May the Almighty preserve you from such passions. There is nothing more terrible. He blessed and embraced, embraced me. Never in my life was I so grandly moved. Reverently, rather than with the feeling of a son, I leaned upon his breast, "'and kissed his scattered silver locks. "'Tears shone in his eyes. "'Fulfill my one request, my son,' said he, "'at the moment of parting. "'You may chance to see the portrait "'I have mentioned somewhere. "'You will know it at once by the strange eyes "'and their peculiar expression. "'Destroy it at any cost. "'Judge for yourselves "'whether I could refuse to promise with an oath to fulfill this request. In the space of fifteen years, I had never succeeded in meeting with anything which in any way corresponded to the description given me by my father, until now, all of a sudden, at an auction. The artist did not finish his sentence, but turned his eyes to the wall in order to glance once more at the portrait. The entire throng of auditors made the same movement, seeking the wonderful portrait with their eyes. But to their extreme amazement, it was no longer on the wall. An indistinct murmur and exclamation ran through the crowd, and then was heard distinctly the word, Stolen! Someone had succeeded in carrying it off, taking advantage of the fact that the attention of the spectators was distracted by the story. And those present long remained in a state of surprise, not knowing whether they had really seen those remarkable eyes or whether it was simply a dream which had floated for an instant before their eyesight, strained with long gazing at old pictures. End of Section 25 Recording by Perry Letson